given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's, make sh- let's uh, open in prayer. Father, we do thank You for this time to study Your Word, and as we continue our study of what took place during the uh, trials and the crucifixion of our Lord, may we be impressed with the complexity of what took place, Your planning and the depth of your grace, that indeed every sin was paid for on the cross on our behalf, and that we indeed have so great a salvation that it should not be neglected. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 18, and we will just briefly remind ourselves of the context before we start doing a little uh, gospel comparison. One of the things that we have noted many times in our study of the Gospels is that each writer writes from a slightly different perspective. He has a, he's not writing a history or a biography of Jesus. Each writer is telling us something distinct about the person and work of Jesus Christ and has a distinct message. For example, Matthew is the Gospel of the King, and he is writing primarily to a Jewish audience to show that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be, the Messiah prophesied from the Old Testament, and that he is the son of David, the greater son of David, and he is the Messiah who came to earth to die on the cross for man's sins. Mark writes to tell about Jesus as the servant. Luke that emphasizes his humanity, Jesus the son of man. And John writes his gospel to emphasize Jesus as the son of God, and the emphasis is on his deity. John writes primarily for two purposes. First, to uh, explain how to be saved. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. And his second purpose in writing comes from Jesus' statement in John 10, that I came not like a thief to steal and destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. And so, for the most part, the Gospel of John is written to explain the signs that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, with the exception of chapters 15 through 17, which explain how to have uh, abundant life and the spiritual life. We are in chapter 18 at the close, where we are examining the trials that Jesus went through before the crucifixion. There were... Six trials of the Lord Jesus Christ. These trials took place. Uh, the first three were, or first two at least, were illegal. 
the, they are the religious trials that took place before the Jews. The first was before the uh, old high priest Annas, who still exercised power, and even though he was not the du jour high priest, that means the high priest by law or by actual title, he would still function de facto as high priest because of his position and power. And it very well could be that if he was a descendant, a Levitical descendant, or Aaronic descendant, that the Jews still recognized that because he would have been appointed for life despite the fact that he was removed from office by the Romans. Jesus appeared before Annas, then the, his son-in-law Caiaphas, who was the actual high priest, and then they summoned the Sanhedrin for a kangaroo court. It was illegal because it was held at night. They passed a um, capital punishment verdict at night, which was illegal. They uh, convicted Jesus on the basis of his own testimony. They did not have uh, witnesses that agreed in convicting him and a number of other reasons that we've covered. So these trials were illegal. Then, since they were not allowed by Roman law to, uh, con- to execute anyone, they could not... Uh, practice capital punishment without Roman position or permission, they had to have a civil trial before Roman authorities and they had to conjure up some sort of uh, charge against Jesus that would be worthy of death under Roman law. So we see that there are two systems of law at work. The Jewish law or the Mosaic law, which came from the hand of God and is the Uh, greatest legal system ever to be utilized in human history and that broke down and was destroyed because of the religious subjectivism of the Jews and their rejection of God and His grace. The civil trial relies upon Roman law and under Roman law Jesus did not have much of a standing because under Roman law Jesus was not a Roman citizen, and therefore he did not have uh, very many rights or much standing, and so it was not even necessary to convene a formal trial. Uh, If he was a Roman citizen like Paul was, and you can compare the trials of the Roman trials of Paul under under Festus in Acts, um, around Acts 17 and following, there are several. Uh, times when he is interviewed by the prefects at, at that time or the procurators at that time and he is treated a certain way because he is a Roman citizen. Jesus was not and so it did not apply to him and there are three civil trials. Uh, first he appears before Pilate, then uh, Herod uh, Antipas who is in Jerusalem for the Passover and then he comes back to Pilate, and we are studying that uh, right now. The first trial before Pilate is covered in John 18, and I want to correct something I said last last time. It goes from John 18:28 down through verse 38 down through verse 38. Sometimes it's difficult in here to find and discover exactly where some of these trials uh, separated because none of the uh, gospel writers 
tell us about all six trials. So you have to compare Scripture with Scripture in order to determine where the breaks were. And that's one thing we're going to be doing uh, this morning. The first religious trial under Annas is covered in John 18, 12 through 14, and verses 19 through 23. The trial under Caiaphas is covered in Matthew 26, 57, and 59 to 68, as well as Mark 14, 53, and 55 through 65. Also, Luke 22, 54, 63 through 65, and briefly mentioned in John 18, 24. The trial before the Sanhedrin is mentioned in Matthew 27, 1, Mark 15, 1, and Luke 22, 66 through 71. That Luke 22, 66 to 71 is the main passage on the Sanhedrin trial. The initial trial before Pilate is covered in John 18, 28 to 38. And here we have seen that Pilate attempts to save Jesus from the cross by declaring his innocence. Pilate interviews Jesus and determines that there is really nothing that Jesus has done that is worthy of capital punishment under Roman law. But as we have seen, Pilate is in a fix. He is basically over a barrel. He is being blackmailed by the religious leaders because of previous failures in his administration. He has offended the Jewish leaders on four different occasions in the past, one of which has occurred just a few months previous to this, and they have complained to Caesar back in Rome, to Tiberius, and Pilate's job may be on the line. So he is being blackmailed and... He is afraid of doing something that might further offend the Jews, and if they complain to Caesar again, he just might lose his life. So he's trying to find, reach some level of compromise with the religious leaders. Now, that sets up where we have been so far down to verse 37. Now, let's just review, briefly read verse 37 and 38. The conclusion of this first trial, Pilate says, said therefore to Jesus, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And here we see a major theme that has been developed in the gospel, and that is Jesus as truth. Before Pilate is standing Jesus, who is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so as absolute truth, the ultimate reality in the universe, the Logos of God, stands before Pilate. Pilate then turns away and rejects truth. He simply states in a very sarcastic tone, what is truth? Now we know that, we can infer that from the text because... We then read, and when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews. In other words, he's not asking Jesus a serious question. He's not entering into dialogue with Jesus over the nature of truth. He simply says, what is truth? He has already demonstrated that he is not positive to uh, God and God consciousness. He has no interest in spiritual things. He has ignored the religious issue. He does not 
uh, try to find out anything more from Jesus about this uh, messianic role that he is accused of. And one thing I pointed out last week, whenever you talk to somebody who's uh, at least mildly curious about spiritual things, you mention something like that, and they'll say, well, tell me about it. Pilate just ignores the whole thing. He could care less about the religious issue and has no spiritual interest whatsoever. And the point is that if he is of the truth, he would listen to Jesus, but he is not. He could care less. And so he turns and he goes back outside to the Jews. And here is his first statement that I find no fault in him. And so what we see here is that Pilate begins to try to avoid executing Jesus and to come up with some basis for letting him go. I want to pursue that thought a little bit to try to understand what is going on in the next three verses because John just gives us a brief glimpse at this episode with Barabbas in verses 39 and 40, but this is developed more fully in other passages of Scripture. So turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. The synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us a little more detail in what was transpiring during the trial of Jesus at this particular stage. Let's pick up the setting. What exactly is the setting? We have already seen that this is in the middle of these six trials, the conclusion of the fourth one before Pilate. Now, if you look at verse 23, or chapter 23, verse 1, we read, Then the whole body of them arose and brought him before Pilate. This is the beginning of the fourth trial. Who is the whole body of them? Well, if you look back into the previous chapter, at verse 66, it is referring to the Sanhedrin. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber. So this is the uh, Sanhedrin. It takes place at daytime because it was necessary for them to have an official verdict. It had to be during daylight hours. So as soon as dawn occurred, they summoned the Sanhedrin to hear the judgment against Jesus and to pass a verdict. After they passed the verdict, the whole body brought them before Pilate. So you have the crowds, the whole body of them, in Luke 23, 1. In Luke 23, verse 4, they are said to be the chief priests and the multitudes. It is not merely the Sanhedrin, but now there is a large crowd of Jews outside the praetorium. Now what has happened is because it is Passover, the Jews are falling back on an excuse that they don't want to come into a Gentile uh, government headquarters because uh, they're using the excuse that it would defile them and they wouldn't be able to eat the Passover dinner. So they're using that in a way they gain a little upper hand on Pilate and are in control of the situation. They're standing outside. They won't come inside the praetorium. And Pilate has to go back and forth. He has Jesus inside. He goes in and he interviews Jesus. Then he walks back outside to talk to them. Then he walks back in to talk to Jesus and he's 
bouncing back and forth, and that shows right away he stopped exercising leadership and he has allowed the Jews to be in control of the situation. He should have said, wait a minute, I'm not, this man, from what I can see, isn't uh, guilty of anything. I'm not going to be railroaded through a making some sort of fast decision on this just because it's a religious holiday. If you want to bring charges against him, we're going to have to follow protocol. You're going to have to come all the way into the praetorium. So if you really care, either come in now or I'll dismiss him or we'll wait and do it next week. But rather than do any of those things which might offend the Jews, he is going to uh, exercise leadership by virtue of um, popular decision, sort of like uh, leading the country on the basis of polls. But we won't say anything more about that. That's bad leadership. Leadership operates from absolutes, not from relatives, not from relativism. And that's exactly what we see with Pilate is he's more concerned about being popular than he is with doing what's right at this point, and he's more concerned with saving his job and maintaining his, his uh, position without offending the Jews. There are the chief priests and the multitudes. And then look down at verse 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people. Before it's the crowd, the whole body, it's called the multitude. And now Luke shifts the term to the people. Well, the chief priests are, are the same group that's been involved before. The rulers here is the Greek, for, Greek word or participle, archontes, which is a term for the rulers. It's a plural indicating the rulers and is used in other places to refer to the Sanhedrin. So here it's, again, just another reference to the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish religious leaders comprised of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then he uses the term the people here, I think, for an important reason. Notice in verse 14, this is a, um, this is a, we'll come back and look at this in a little more logical order in a minute. But in verse 14, he's going to announce again that he's found no guilt in Jesus. Now, the charge against Jesus was that, by the Jews, was that he was deceiving the people and leading them astray. That was a specific charge. He is, he is misleading the people, laos in the Greek, the people. And so I think Paul, I mean, uh, Luke, when he uh, expresses who the, describes the crowd in verse 13, he uses that phrase, the people, because he's drawing our attention to the fact that the Sanhedrin had charged Jesus with deceiving the people, and now it is the people who allegedly were deceived to whom Pilate is going to announce Jesus' innocence. So Pilate is trying to avoid uh, judging Jesus and is trying to avoid uh, executing Jesus, despite the fact that the Jews have fabricated a charge of political insurrection and sedition. They have claimed about Jesus that he is perverting the nation. They had th really three charges, that he's perverting the nation, that he uh, was prohibiting people from paying tribute to Caesar, which was blatantly false, and that he had made himself to be king of the Jews. And it's that last charge that they're hoping to pin everything as some sort that he is some sort of a political threat to Caesar. Now, the interesting thing is if you've been around for any length of time, especially back in the 60s or 70s, it was very popular to paint Jesus as a political 
revolutionary, that he was uh, leading people to freedom, that he sometimes he's portrayed as some sort of freedom fighter like uh, Che Guevara or Fidel Castro. And you had all kinds of silly things like that were written back in the 60s and 70s. But, of course, that had a precedence in liberal theology going back into the early 19th century. The interesting thing is that there is no evidence in extant literature at all in the early period of Jewish history, or when, when under, under a Roman uh, <coughs> prefect, there were two periods when is, uh, <coughs> the Jews were ruled by a Roman prefect. Remember, Herod the Great was the king who ruled up until his death in about 4 B.C., and then after that, they went through various administrations, and then from 6 A.D., until uh, approximately 40 A.D., <clears throat> it was under the rule of a governor or prefect like Pontius Pilate, and there were two or three that ruled during that period. And then there was another period when Herod Agrippa II ruled for <clears throat> a couple of years, and then there's a second period of Roman uh, direct rule under a prefect from 42 to 66 when the Jewish Wars of Rebellion began. It was this second period that was marked by insurrection, by civil disobedience, by the rise of many false messiahs and all kinds of political movements, not the first period. In fact, <clears throat> during that first period, Josephus, in his writings, only uses the word Messiah to describe Jesus. In the second period, he uses it to, to refer to many false messiahs, because this was the period of of political instability, the period from 6 A.D. to 40 A.D. was a period of remarkable political stability in Israel. Even though uh, Pilate had made several mistakes, and there was, of course, a Jewish level of Jewish patriotism that <coughs> uh, chafed at being under Roman rule, it was still a period that was marked by relative stability in Israel. Most of the stuff that, that you hear either on television shows or Hollywood movies or the popular view that Jesus is some sort of revolution, the press and Hollywood have to go with that because if they go with the truth, it, it, it's too convicting. So you have to go with some other alternative, and that's the one they opt for. But there's absolutely no evidence in any historically extant literature that there are, were those kinds of revolutionary activities taking place during the period of Jesus' lifetime prior to uh, 40, <clears throat> 40 A.D. But they are, they, the Jews here do fabricate this charge. He's making himself out to be a king because they need to have something that is worthy of execution under Roman law. So they come up with that particular charge and... <clears throat> So Pilate has to deal with it. Now, in John 18.31, in his first attempt to avoid responsibility in the trial, Pilate had told the Jews to just take Jesus and judge him by their own law. And that's when they responded by coming up with these charges that he was really uh, causing trouble, perverting the nation, and making himself out to be the king of the Jews. So that meant that Pilate had to go back in and evaluate him a little further, and that is the what we covered in John 18:32 down through verse 38. 
And so at that point, Pilate takes his second attempt to um, free Jesus. And he, after this examination, he again finds Jesus to be innocent. And we saw that in John 18.38 when Pilate said, I find no basis for a charge against him. So by that point, by the end of the first trial... Pilate has twice stated that Jesus is not guilty of any crime. So he takes the third step in avoiding responsibility for the situation, and he knew that Herod was in town, Herod Agrippa, I mean Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of Galilee, the Tetrarch of Galilee. So he sent Jesus to Herod. I'll pass the buck. And this is covered in Luke 23. Verses 4 and following. Pilate said to the chief priests and multitudes, I find no guilt in the man. That's the conclusion of that first trial. But they kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he said, Ah, he's found a way out. He's a Galilean? Is that what I hear you saying? Well, Herod's in town, so he's the Tetrarch of Galilee, so that's his jurisdiction, so I'll uh, send Jesus to Herod. Verse 8, Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, curiosity, not positive volition, because he had been hearing about him, was hoping to see some sign performed by him. So you don't see anything negative about Herod here. He's not hostile to Jesus. In fact, the picture that Luke presents is that he's, he's mildly curious and interested. Verse 9, he questioned him at some length, but Jesus answered him nothing. He was not going to speak. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And I want you to notice, in the midst of this scene, Jesus is calm. He's in control. He is relaxed. He is being unjustly accused. He is being presented as a victim. He is being lied about. He is having false witnesses come up to him. He has already been beaten probably at least once by the Roman guards. Uh, He's not a very imposing figure at this point. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he stayed awake all night praying that he was under such pressure that he was sweating drops of blood. So here he doesn't look very good. His hair is probably... Uh, If not still wet, it looks like it has been damp and wet. His clothes are blood-stained. I do not imagine that he had a very pleasant body odor if he had been sweating blood and sweat all night. And this is caked upon his garment. He has his hands tied behind him. His feet are tied together. So he is not a very imposing figure, and yet he refuses to... Answer. He maintains his poise under pressure. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus is doing two things in his life. The primary directive was to go to the cross and die for our sins. The second objective was to institute the basis for a new spiritual life operating on the filling of the Holy Spirit that would be the spiritual life of the coming church age, which is the age in which we're now living. Jesus is demonstrating here 
that under incredible adversity, you do not have to convert that outside pressure of adversity into the internal fragmentation of stress in the soul. That no matter how unjust the treatment, no matter how false the accusations, no matter how painful and horrible the physical abuse might be, that is no excuse for reacting in emotional sin, that is no excuse for pushing the panic button, and it is no reason for giving up hope. He knows that God has a plan for his life. He knows what that plan is. He knows that God is still in control. And so he relaxes completely in the provision of God and fulfills God's plan for his life. The chief priests, on the other hand, are accusing him vehemently. They have converted the outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. They are operating on anger, on bitterness, on jealousy, on envy, and they are fragmenting. But, as we'll see in a minute, they're not the only ones who are fragmenting in the midst of this scenario. The only one who seems to maintain poise and stability throughout it all is our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the midst of this trial before Herod, he is accused vehemently. All sorts of false charges are thrown around, and yet uh, nothing happens. I mean, he does not respond. Verse 11, And Herod with his soldiers... After treating him with contempt and mocking him, so they're ridiculing him, the soldiers are, they're probably spitting on him, and they're making fun of him. They dressed him in a gorgeous robe. I don't know why they did that. Maybe a sense of irony. There are uh, other indications that it was, it was a standard operating procedure from Roman soldiers to dress up someone like this as if they were a king as a way of ridiculing and mocking them. Now remember, Jesus has not slept all night. He is physically tired and weakened by that. He has not eaten since uh, the night before. And yet he continues to maintain his poise. Now most of us, when we get tired and hungry, get a little bit irritable. It's a little less likely that we're going to maintain our poise and self-discipline and focus on spiritual priorities. And yet what this is showing us is that that even under those conditions, the Holy Spirit is sufficient for us to maintain a relaxed mental attitude and poise and stability even when we're tired and hungry. And that's no excuse for being out of fellowship and grumpy and irritable and short-tempered. So he goes through all of the ridicule, all of the hostility, and Herod releases him back to Pilate. Herod, too, is smart. He knows the this is a hot political potato. He doesn't uh, want to take responsibility because he doesn't find anything in Jesus that is worthy of guilt. So Pilate's third attempt to avoid responsibility fails. Herod agrees with Pilate that Jesus is innocent and returns the innocent Jesus back to Herod. Now I want you to notice what... Uh, Pilate says down in down in verse 15. Verse 15 in his this is by verses 13 and following is the sixth and final trial before Pilate. And there he says he announces again this is the fourth point his fourth attempt to pronounce Jesus innocent and to let him go. 
He has said at the end of verse 14, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod. Very accurate translation in the Greek. It might be even better translated. Neither has Herod found any fault in this man. Not only do I find him innocent, but Herod has found him innocent. So, twice Pilate has announced that Jesus is innocent. Herod finds him innocent. He's not challenged on this point, and yet the Jews are insistent. They continue to apply pressure on Pilate. This leads Pilate to his fifth solution to try to avoid executing Jesus. And this is that he seeks a substitute. He now is going to grab at straws to find some solution. And he says um, he's going to seek a solution and an alternative in Barabbas. But before that, we see that Pilate himself has now succumbed to the internal pressure of stress in the soul, and he is losing control of the situation. Notice what he says in verse 15. Not only does he say in verse 14, I found no guilt in this man, and that Herod has found no guilt in this man, but he says, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Okay, he's innocent. He's not guilty. He hasn't done anything criminal. He hasn't done anything worthy of capital punishment. So what's Pilate going to do? Let him go? No. No, I will therefore punish him. Why would you punish someone you have just declared three times to be innocent, to be not guilty? Only because at this point, Pilate has lost control of the situation. He realizes that he cannot let Jesus go without giving the masses something. He has to throw some kind of a bone to the masses in order to get them off his back. So he is willing to sacrifice his leadership and the objectivity of Roman law in order to uh, make up to the Roman masses. And this principle goes is another principle of leadership that once you start... Uh, appealing to the masses, you have lost control of the situation and you are no longer a leader. Furthermore, it indicates that you are beginning to fragment in your own soul. Notice the contrast here between Pilate and Jesus. They are both undergoing intense adversity. Pilate is under pressure, under political pressure from the religious leaders Jesus is undergoing unjust accusation and a trial. Pilate's career and perhaps even his life are on the line. Jesus' life definitely is on the line. And the judgment of the perfect, sinless, eternal second person of the Trinity who will become sin for mankind is on the horizon. Pilate has rejected the truth. Jesus is the truth. Pilate has no resources to handle adversity, and Jesus continues to rely exclusively on God the Holy Spirit for stability, and he utilizes 
eight of the ten stress busters. He doesn't have to confess sin, number one, and he he doesn't have to be occupied with Christ, number ten. So there's only eight that apply to Jesus. And he pioneered for us the spiritual life in terms of the stress busters, demonstrating that he can handle any outside pressure, any difficulty, with the sufficiency of God the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine. So Jesus maintains his stability because of the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine. Jesus remains calm, objective, and focused. Pilate vacillates, becomes subjective, compromises, and waffles. Internally, he is fragmenting, and he is becoming a moral coward. Now, one thing that we can um, perhaps uh, know about Pilate, very little is known about Pilate. In fact, last week I made the statement that Pilate committed suicide. I've been doing more study on Pilate this week, and part of the problem is 90% of what we know about Pilate is in the Scriptures. Josephus adds a little bit, but it pretty much confirms what's in the Scriptures, and nobody else says anything. I have since studied even more. I have read that Pilate was executed. I have read he committed suicide. And I have read that he was exiled and died of old age. There are so many things that have been written about Pilate and also about Barabbas, who we're going to look at in a minute, that are based on just speculation that it's almost impossible to read anything without recognizing that whoever it is you've read They've picked up some sort of speculation somewhere and now teaching it as fact. And that's true even with uh, something as reputable as Unger's Bible Dictionary. So, uh, Pilate is now fragmenting. He's becoming a moral coward. One thing we can suggest, though, it seems pretty likely, for him to be appointed as a prefect, we know that he came from the second tier level of aristocracy in Rome, which were called the equestrian ranks. And they were the equestrian ranks were people who were promoted from sort of an upper middle class area because of uh, job performance, because of skill, because of something that they had done. And for him to have been appointed prefect, he should have had a successful military career prior to this. So we can suggest from that and from some other things that we know about Pilate is that he did have a certain amount of courage when it came to uh, military events, when it came to battle, when it came to facing down certain situations. But when it comes to a moral crisis where he has to take a stand, he is morally bankrupt because he has rejected absolutes. Once you reject absolutes, you have no basis for stability anymore. This happens individually and it happens as a nation. And this is one reason that this nation is fragmenting internally because we have rejected moral absolutes from the highest level of leadership in the land all the way down to the lowest level of the population. Very few people, including Christians, consistently believe and operate on absolutes. Now, there are some Christians who stand out as stalwart examples of those who have uh, had their mentality renewed by the Word of God and do believe in absolutes, but there are so many who haven't. I always remember an incident that occurred about ten years ago in Dallas. This was a time... In the late 80s, if you remember, great scandals among Christian leaders. There was 
a number of televangelists who were shot down because of one failure or another. And this particular individual in Dallas was pastor of the largest Baptist church in Dallas. It was even bigger than First Baptist. And I can't remember the pastor's name now, and that's irrelevant. But it was discovered that uh, by the board of deacons that he had not only had uh, one affair with a woman in the church, but he had they had kept that quiet as they should because he had said, I won't do it again. And they had ex- set up some sort of, a, uh, of an accountability uh, plan to uh, take him through restoration. And, uh, but it was then discovered that he wasn't doing that and that there weren't one. There were probably 30 or 40 women in the church who came forward with uh, charges of moral infidelity. So um, this was a big scandal in Dallas. And news media went out there as they do. And they're interviewing people. And they're interviewing one lady in the church. And this lady says, well, I don't know why everybody's so upset. Everybody else is doing it. Why can't he? Most Christians are operating on moral relativity. They don't have this courage of their conviction. They come to church, they take notes, they know a lot about what the Bible says, but when they live their lives on a day-to-day basis, they do not, are not willing to live on the basis of absolutes. And that destroys their spiritual life and destroys their moral integrity. And that's what's happened in our nation. And we see it exemplified here with Pilate. Pilate it falls apart because there is nothing in his soul that can give him stability. That can only come from Bible doctrine. So he begins to waffle and he is willing to punish Jesus even though he realizes Jesus is not guilty of anything. Now the other thing I want to point out in Luke 23:16 is the word for punish. The word for punish is the Greek verb paiduo. This is familiar to some of you, P-A-I-D-E-U-O. And it refers to the training of a child. It can also refer to, to discipline. It can refer to corporal discipline. And it can refer to some sort of, of mild punishment. This is not the flagellation punishment that Jesus is going to get from Pilate in just a little while. This is... Pilate's still trying to just stay as, uh, uh, with the least amount of involvement as possible, so he's not offering a serious beating at this point. He is just saying, well, well, we'll knock him around a little bit and uh, punish him at some low level, even though he's guilty of nothing. Maybe this will satisfy uh, the uh, bloodlust of the masses. But he was unable to do this. Verse 17, which uh, it's in brackets in your New American Standard. It's not found in uh, what some consider to be the oldest manuscripts. They think that the oldest means the best. I don't necessarily go along with that conclusion. It's very possible it's uh, textual corruption because it's not in some manuscripts, but it is in a number of manuscripts, and so we will treat it as if it is part of the Word of God. It is clearly... Excuse me, it is clearly stated in Matthew and Mark. Now he, that is Pilate, was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. So this informs us that there apparently was a custom among the Jews. There's little 
extra biblical information on this, but there was a custom that during the Passover, because this is the highest of the holy days in Israel, that the Jews would release, in, in one gospel it says the Jews, it was a custom of the Jews, in another place it states that it was Pilate's custom, it was probably a custom they had that Pilate um, went along with, and that he would offer one prisoner each year as and would um, uh, commute his sentence and release him. So he realizes that he has this obligation, he thinks, well, I've got this one prisoner here, Barabbas, and what I'll do is I'll release Barabbas and, and, or give them the option of Barabbas or Jesus, and Barabbas is such a horrible criminal that they won't want him released again because he has victimized so many people and he's a murderer and a thief that they will choose Jesus instead. But he, he underestimates the power of religious emotionalism and the antagonism of the religious crowd to Jesus. What we see, just kind of an interesting aside here, <coughs> is that three groups of people are really represented in this, in, in this trial scenario. On the one hand, you have the Jewish religious leaders who represent religious people down throughout the ages. Religion is the greatest enemy to Christianity. Religion, by definition, seeks to gain approval with God based on who and what man is. Religion emphasizes personal morality. It emphasizes ritual. And emphasizes human works as a way to gain God's approval. And whenever religion is challenged by grace, then there is always antagonism and opposition and hostility to grace. Religion always hated Jesus. The religious Jews were always opposed to him, and they despised grace. Um, rejected the gospel. Pilate, on the other hand, represents the secular atheist who rejects God at God consciousness and is not interested at all in spiritual things. And then the third representative here is Barabbas. And Barabbas is the criminal. He is a representative of the lowest element of human society. And what we see here by way of irony that is pointed out in all of the Gospels is that the religious crowd that emphasizes morality and human works prefers the pond scum of Barabbas to the perfect Son of God. They prefer human sludge to salvation and the grunge of humanity over the grace of God. And this is always the inclination of the sin nature. Let me make that a little more pointed. This is always the inclination of your sin nature and my sin nature. Because the sin nature is always attracted to human good and to evil and to sin. Never underestimate your sin nature or anybody else's sin nature. 
That's one thing that, that makes us do or is the source of why we do much that we do. And we always disappoint ourselves and might disappoint others because of the sin nature. That's one reason we have to always forgive one another and treat one another with grace because grace is the only way to deal with the sin nature. What happens otherwise is that you get involved in self-righteousness and arrogance and then hypocrisy, which is what happens with the religious crowd here. Rather than choosing the perfect Son of God, they choose this slime bag coming out of the pits of the Antonio Fortress prison. Barabbas is a notorious criminal. He's called an insurrectionist in Mark 15:7 that he was involved in promoting a riot. In Luke uh, 23, he is uh, said to be a, a murderer, a, a robber, and a bandit, and he is called a violent armed man in John 18, verse 40. So what we see here is that the, the people are choosing the worst of society and rejecting the perfect Son of God the most, the only perfect human to ever live. So we read in verse 18, they cried out all together, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. It's very possible that Barabbas was associated with the two thieves that were later crucified with Jesus. Obviously, Pilate was involved in several, uh, judicial decisions that day, that he was passing sentence and executing judgment on that day. It was part of the Code of Justinian that anyone who is convicted should be quickly punished. So it wasn't in, in, under Roman law. You didn't get a chance to appeal the verdict and stretch it out over 10 or 15 years before you were executed and tr- attempt to uh, bankrupt the system. You know, one of the arguments against capital punishment is it cost more to... Uh, execute somebody than it does to uh, keep them in prison for life. You know, you probably pay thirty-five, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year to support some uh, guy on, in, in prison who committed murder. But if he's uh, a criminal, I mean, if he's been uh, uh, <clears throat> given a capital punishment and he's to be executed, then you have all those legal fees because he gets to appeal his verdict about 20 times or more, and that's just going to jack up all the legal fees. So it really costs more to uh, execute somebody, and that shouldn't be, so in my opinion, they ought to get one appeal. Should be, that appeal should be done within the first year, and they should be executed no later than a, a year after the original verdict. Really, I'd like it to be longer than that, but I'm not even going to get that. So, There's nothing wrong biblically with capital punishment. God is omniscient. God knew from eternity past that men were sinners and men would make mistakes. And yet he still ought not only authorized but commanded human government to execute criminals for certain uh, crimes, including murder and rape and a num- number of other crimes. And when a society quits doing that, then they are on the road to self-destruction. Now, Barabbas is an interesting individual in some of the Matthew uh, texts not the majority of the manuscripts, but in many manuscripts, he's called Jesus Barabbas. And so it is assumed that there was a choice. 
which Jesus do you want? And Barabbas was a was an Aramaic word that meant son of the father. So there's the speculation that he was offering he, Pilate chose to offer Jesus Barabbas, Jesus son of the father, or Jesus king of the Jews, and he might have been just playing with the crowd a little bit in the midst of that using a little humor. Uh, but the the use in Luke of the fact that he was involved in a riot, that he was a, called a lace taste, which is not simply a robber, but is someone who committed armed robbery and was a violent man, that this indeed was one of the worst criminals in Jewish society. So they chose the absolute worst instead of the best. And that is the question that everyone must answer. Do they want Jesus or do they want Barabbas? Barabbas being their own sin nature and having to deal with sin on their own apart from Jesus Christ. And so the masses, the religious moral masses, choose Barabbas and reject Jesus Christ. And we find then in Luke uh, 23, verse 23, But they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail because the masses had been stirred up by the religious leaders. And so Pilate finally completely caved in and pronounced sentence that their demand should be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And it is at this point that Jesus begins to go through the incredible physical torment and suffering that he would uh, encounter before he went to the cross. And we will begin our study of that next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we all have this choice to make, Jesus Christ or not. We are all faced with the same choice of the masses in Jerusalem. Are we going to choose the best of humanity, the perfect Son of God, undiminished deity united with true humanity, or are we going to choose to rely upon our own efforts and our own resources? And we are no better, none of us are any better than Barabbas although he may have committed certain overt crimes that we have not, in terms of his internal essential character as a sinner, he is no worse and we are no better than he. So this is the choice. This choice determines our eternal destiny. The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? If you were here this morning and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, that is the issue before you right now. All you have to do to be saved is to trust Christ as your Savior. You don't need to promise God anything, bargain with God, make moral reformation or any other human factor. The only issue is Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us as we continue to understand all that you have done for us, that we might be stirred to gratitude, realizing that you have not only saved us but given us a a unique and an incredible spiritual life that we are to develop and to live that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.